Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brady and Diana, as always, for leading us in worship. Such a blessing to raise our voices. I know after some of our national news this week, we are blessed to be able to put on a garment of praise for what can sometimes feel like a spirit of heaviness. It is good medicine. And as we continue our prayer and remembrance through Voice of the Martyrs this month for the persecuted church around the world, each week this month we'll be remembering those who have gone before us in paying the ultimate price for their testimony of Jesus Christ. And today takes us back around 150 years ago, and there was a tremendous revival in Wales. And as a result of this revival, many missionaries were commissioned to bring the gospel to far-off lands. And one of these areas was a region in northeast India known as Assam. Now, this was an extremely dangerous area with many different tribes. Even headhunters were known to reside here. But casting fear aside, missionaries came to this area and watched the Lord convert a man, his wife, and their two children to Christ. Of course, when someone is born again, the natural response is to tell others. You want others to know the Savior that found you, that saved you, that made you a new person from the inside out. And that is exactly what this family did. And as a result, many in this village began professing faith in Christ. Well, this, of course, eventually caught the attention of the chief of this village, and the chief gathered the entire village together one day, along with this first family that had come to Christ and had began bringing others to Christ as well. And bringing the family forward, the chief demanded that this man renounce his faith in Christ. This man bowed his head and said, I have decided to follow Jesus. At that moment, a bowman turned and executed his two children on the spot. And as his children lie there on the ground, again the chief told him to renounce his fate, or his wife would receive his faith, or his wife would receive the same fate. And the man replied, Though no one joins me, still I will follow. Though the bowman turned his arrow on his wife, dispatching her into eternity, along with their children. So finally, with one final warning, to spare his own life, the chief demanded that he publicly renounce his faith and stop preaching God, this God, to the village. The man replied, the cross is before me, the world is behind me, there is no turning back. Yet as we were reminded last week, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The chief had ordered the killings, the chief who had ordered the killings, was moved by the faith of this man. And he wondered why should this man and his wife and two children die for a man who lived in a faraway land on another continent 2,000 years ago? There must be some remarkable power behind that family's faith. And I want to taste that faith. And really in what was a spontaneous confession of faith, he declared, I too belong to Jesus. When the crowd heard this from the mouth of their chief, the whole village confessed Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now you'll likely recognize the last words of this man who gave his life. This man from the Garo tribe of Assam in India. 
And today it's considered the song of the Garo people. The cross is before me, the world is behind me. No turning back, no turning back. I pray we fix our gaze as well this morning on the author and perfecter of our faith, the lover of our soul, beloved. May we not hold too tight to this life, to our family, to our possessions. We look to heaven and we look to Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we dove into a message titled, Faith, Words, and Prayer. And there were quite a number of people that expressed such a joy and growth that they experienced through that message. If you happen to have missed it, I want to encourage you to go online and to listen. I pray you will be blessed by it as well. It was a unique message that drew our attention to three facets of Jesus' exhortation to his disciples. That of faith, words, and prayer. And if you'll recall, Jesus' teaching in our text last week are often used as proof texts for some extremely heretical teachings in our society today. And thus we did a bit of a deep dive into the meaning of Jesus' exhortations in these areas. And we saw first the perplexing truth that our faith and our words and our prayers by themselves contain no power. I could probably bet one of Ed Perez's famous tacos that you never expected to hear that from the pulpit. And while it was a perplexing and difficult concept to grasp, we soon saw the freedom in such a truth. We soon soon learned that it was not our faith that contained any power, but it is the object of our faith that contains the power and that has the power. And because our God is all-powerful, our faith, our words, and our prayer are merely the means and the mechanism by which we access the one who can move mountains. It's certainly contrary to our ears to think that our, our faith and our words and our prayers by themselves are absolutely powerless. Yet these are the vehicles that has driven us to the one who can accomplish all things. That vehicle itself isn't valuable necessarily. It is the one to whom our prayer drove us to that is valuable. So I pray that we have grasped the freedom of this truth. If it's not my faith that must perform, if it's not my words that contain any power, if even my prayer is only a vehicle to get me to the one with any power, then it's all about him. And the weight is off of us. If we would get out of the way, if we would cease ascribing power to ourselves that belongs to God alone, it makes incredible room in our lives for the kind of powerful prayer that lays hold of the one who can move mountains. Walking and trusting in the faith of God. A distinction scripture makes that blows our life of faith and prayer wide open. I had someone share with me this week that they have never experienced prayer like they have this week, having grasped this truth. So praise the Lord. Again, if you missed that message, I know we had quite a few families that were out last week. I would encourage you to go online for that. But today, we continue our march into Passion Week, finding ourselves on Wednesday morning of our Lord's last week of earthly ministry. Another incredible scene unfolds that is quite in accord with the divine timetable as Jesus confronts and rebukes once again those who would crucify 
the Lord of glory. We will see Jesus walk right back into the lion's den this time, not tipping over tables, but instead challenging and declaring authority. And he does so by issuing such a stunning rebuke so as to close the door on them forever. We have much to see as we complete the 11th chapter of Mark. So with that, beloved, let's look to our text. Mark 11, verse 27 through 33. Mark 11, 27 through 33. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority? Are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven... He will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd. For everyone was regarding John to have been a real prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, within this text we find glory and tragedy. Lord, we need you to see this text rightly. We need you to go before us. We need you to prepare our hearts that we might receive a difficult text. But Lord, a wonderful text. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would prepare us. We ask that you would till the fallow ground, Lord, that the seeds that are planted might bear fruit in due season. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, John Stevenson tells of one of the most famous commanders of the Nazi army in World War II. He was a, name, he was a man by the name of Erwin Rommel. His nickname was the Desert Fox because of his prowess in the battlefields of Africa. But before leading the Axis army in North Africa, Rommel was a commander in the German army during the invasion of France in 1940. And it was during that invasion that Rommel tells of having taken a ride in his command car to scout the front, knowing that there were Allied troops all over the area. And as he was driving through the Belgium hills, likely just just he and his driver, he rounded a turn and suddenly came face to face with a truck filled with enemy soldiers. Without missing a beat, Rommel hopped out of his command car, and calling loudly to the soldiers, he said, You are all now prisoners of the German army. Drive your truck in that direction, and you will be processed accordingly. The soldiers in the first truck nodded their head in agreement, and they drove the direction they were told. And of course, the truck behind them followed suit as did the truck behind that one. In amazement, Rommel watched while 20 truckloads of soldiers meekly surrendered. It's amazing what one man speaking with authority can do. Well, here in our text, this is precisely the issue at hand. 
that of authority. Who has it and who doesn't? Unlike Rommel, who's merely spoke with authority, who, had he been pressed, had nothing to back up his command, Jesus possesses all authority. He is not a loud voice with nothing to back up his claims. For three years, Jesus has confirmed his claims, not only with miracles, but with messianic miracles. Miracles that, according to Jewish writing, only Messiah could have performed. It's not Rommel standing there alone. It would be Rommel standing there with the entire army behind him. But this is the verdict, John writes in his gospel, that light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. It really is that simple. When we look at the intransigence of the religious elite, really of the entire nation of Israel, whose Messiah has come to her, claiming and confirming all authority, yet not only would they deny him, but they would watch it all, they would witness it all, and they would kill him for it. Why? Because people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. And today in our text, our religious leaders have rounded the bend in their truck, so to speak. And they have come face to face with General Jesus. And he is backed with all the forces of heaven. But instead of surrendering, the conflict is about to escalate even further. So with that, beloved, let's look to our first verse, verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem. Now pause there. Again, we're looking at Wednesday morning here on our timeline. Now there's some discussion and disagreement on this point, but it's not central to the theme. So don't get too worked up over that. What is worthy to get us excited is where he goes. Look at this. And as he was walking in the temple. Talk about returning to the scene of the crime as far as they were concerned. I imagine that Jesus was the last person they thought they would see having just done what he did. This was blasphemy against God as they saw it. This was worthy of death as they saw it. And here he comes walking right back in. And not just laying low, sitting on a wicker basket. Mark tells us that he was walking in the temple. Now this intimates that he was teaching and even preaching. This is how it was done in this day and age. The rabbis wouldn't stand behind a pulpit like this when they taught. They would move around and they would walk and people would follow. So we don't need to surmise about this, right? Luke tells us in his gospel account, on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. So we know. Jesus was not just scoping it out. He's actively teaching and preaching the very day after having performed an act of stamina and destruction that would have rocked the temple bazaars. And who walks back in the front door teaching and preaching, knowing full well that being about his father's business today would result in poking the bear. But let the clash come. It has gone on for three years with their underlings in different places, Pharisees coming with their objections and slander. But compared to what is about to unfold here in our text, every religious leader thus far has been the hired help, 
in Judaism. Now you've destroyed the bottom line. You hit us in the ego and you hit us in the checkbook. No more underlings. Out comes the executive board. Out comes the CEO, the COO, and the CFO. Here they come. Look with me. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now that really requires a bit of unpacking. On the the surface, this kind of sounds like a a run-of-the-mill encounter with some religious people, just like Jesus had always had. Well, not at all. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This is a long way for saying, this is the Sanhedrin. These are the grand pubas of all religious life in all of Israel. This was the Jewish high court. They were the go-betweens between the Jews and the Romans. So they exercised both political and religious authority in Israel. This body of the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 men who were led by the high priest. This was established going all the way back to Ezra's day. There is no higher earthly, spiritual, Judaic authority than the one that is about to engage Jesus right here, right now. Now, our text says that they came to him. (laughs) This might give off a bit of the wrong impression, like they were asking for a little chat. That's not the case. If we rotate our gospel diamond to Luke's account, we see Luke's wording indicating that they came on the attack. They were seen red. These were not open hearts coming to hear the claims of Jesus. Understand this, beloved. They were raging against Jesus. You ever tried to communicate with someone who's really angry? There's typically not a whole lot of communication actually taking place. They may be able to hear you, but they're certainly not listening. Recall that when Jesus committed this act of cursing and clearing the temple court of the Gentiles, it was here, it was in that moment that Jesus' death warrant was figuratively signed. It would have been here that the Sanhedrin would have been out for blood. And here he comes, walking in the front door, teaching and preaching the very next day. It's amazing. You can just imagine this group of men, right? For with all of their, their pomp and their circumstance marching toward Jesus, with all the crowd just splitting there as they came through, all eyes within seeing distance of this would have been fixed on this scene. This is the Sanhedrin confronting someone in the court of the Gentiles. High drama, high Passover drama. With all the eyes on this scene, what do they say? Verse 28, verse 28. And began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, let's first give some credit where credit is due. This is an eminently reasonable question, is it not? The issue at hand here is one of authority. And they couldn't be more right. Oh, to get so close. By what authority are you doing these things? These things meaning the clearing of the temple. By what or who gave you the authority to do that? Now, we have to camp for a moment on this topic, on the issue of authority, that word being exousia. In the New Testament alone, it's used over 93 times, 39 times just in the Gospels. 
Meaning this is a central theme surrounding Jesus and surrounding his detractors. By what authority? Authority here, exousia here, meaning to what? To possess the might and the right. When you hear authority, think of the might and the right in a circumstance. And that makes sense because one would need to possess both the will of the one with the authority, right? You need both. You need the might and you need the right to have true authority. Someone could be a five-star general, right? With all the rights to command an army. But what if his army left him? He still has the right, but does he have the might? No, he doesn't. So does he still possess all authority? No. Now, this is important as we look to this issue, as we seek to understand it as our original audience would have understood it. Jesus, by what right and with whose might do you accomplish what you just did yesterday? That is the question at hand. Everything is a question of authority. Nothing has changed. The reason the world hates Christ is because he claims all authority. He, com- he claims complete exclusivity. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All authority, Matthew tells us, has been given to me on heaven and on earth. It's all mine, mine, mine. Paul tells us in Colossians that all things were made by him and for him and through him. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He has all authority. And the world hates him for it. Because if he has all authority, if Jesus has the might and the right, that includes me. That means he has the might and the right to tell me how I must live as well. And I don't want that. I don't want to be someone under authority. I want to be free. But that person is not free. They are under the authority of their father, the devil. The only true freedom available in this world is in submission to Christ and his authority. He that the Son has set free is free indeed. And so it is in our text with the Sanhedrin that has come. They've come to attack. They're not asking with a desire to know. They're asking with a desire to trap And to ensnare Jesus. They already want him killed for what he's done yesterday. Now they just need to get him by law. Really, they want Jesus to blaspheme, is what they want. That's what they want. They want him to claim an authority that would belong to God alone. And there will come a time very soon, standing in front of Pilate, that Jesus will do just that. However, today is not that day. Now, some may observe what an opportunity this would have been for Jesus. Boy, what a chance for Jesus to share the gospel message with them. He has a captive audience of the entire Sanhedrin. What a chance. What does Jesus do? What does he say? Verse 29. Verse 29. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. And you will answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, it's very subtle here, but Jesus just flipped the script. 
Do we see that? Particularly in the rabbinical style of teaching, the one asking the question is the one with the authority. So before Jesus even gets to playing stump the chump with the Sanhedrin here, he's already told them, by virtue of being the questioner himself, that his authority exceeds theirs. Ouch. There's no question in verse 29, who is in control? Nobody questions the chief priests. No one questions the scribes, the experts of the law. And now Jesus twice, in verse 29 and 30, is going to say, answer me! Exclamation point. This would be like walking into a king's throne room and putting your feet up and telling the king that you've got some questions that need answering. The onlookers would be looking on with horror. This is the Sanhedrin. Just by virtue of Jesus' response in verse 29, the elite would have lost face with the crowd. Huge fuel to the fire. So now it's time to play stump the chump with the high and mighty. You've now told the most powerful religious force in the world that they are going to answer you something. So riddle me this. Riddle me this. Verse 30. Verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. <laughs> oh, what treasures lie in Jesus' question. Talk about sitting on the horns of a dilemma. Neither option is good here. Both are going to hurt. We are reminded for those who were with us in Mark 1 that probably seemed like an eternity ago, Mark 1, the gospel opened with John the Baptist preaching. The forerunner of Christ, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare the way. But we have a tremendous problem here. John the Baptist looked at Jesus and declared for all to hear, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is Messiah. One commentator referred to Jesus and John as a, quote, package deal. That's what makes this such a brilliant question. The entire ministry of John the Baptist was to point to Christ, to prepare a people for Christ. Thus, his baptism was like none other. Now here, when we say, when Jesus says the baptism of John, it's, it's meant to be all-encompassing. It's an all-encompassing term, meaning what John was doing and saying, his ministry, his preaching, his teaching. But we do need to be reminded of the baptism of John, what it means, how different it was, because this was highly inflammatory. Understand that baptism at this point was, was an act that was performed on Gentiles. Gentiles who wished to renounce paganism, right? It was a ritualistic washing ceremony that was performed by Jews as a way for them to accept an outsider, to allow a Gentile to come into the temple to worship. So baptism was a big deal, but it was for Gentiles. But John was calling for Jews to be baptized, this was insulting to the highest degree. This was a frontal assault on their very identity as God's chosen people. John is saying, you think you're in the club. You think you're God's chosen people because of your national identity or because of your external rituals 
But no. It's going to get the Pharisees a little worked up when you start preaching that the children of Abraham, the Israelites, needed to be cleansed. You're trying to equate us with the Gentiles. We don't need washing. They need washing. How dare you? John's baptism was not like the others. John proclaimed that in order for the path to be made straight, in order for hearts to be prepared for the coming king, the people must repent and be cleansed from their sin. They must be washed anew. And while Jews would still even ceremonially wash to enter, the, to enter into worship, John's baptism was a one-time event, and it required repentance. To submit and subject yourself to this washing, to John's baptism, was to truly have a change of heart. They've seen the emptiness and the hollowness of their external religious acts. John's baptism was like none other. And what it stood for flew a huge red flag in the face of these works-based hypocrisy of the very Sanhedrin that's being asked this question. John's baptism said, being a child of Abraham will not save you. Going to temple and performing rituals will not save you. You must make ready your hearts. And the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they know they've got a problem on their hands. Look at their response. Verse 31 and 32, I'll read them as one. 31 and 32. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But but if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd. For everyone was regarding John to have been a real prophet. Well, this is amazing. In one foul swoop, these religious leaders commit two of the deadliest errors in ministry. Verse 31, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? Are these men operating on the basis of conviction here or of expediency and pragmatism? They're not asking the question, is it true? Is it right? Are they? They're more concerned with winning an argument, with saving face, just making the problem go away. They don't care what the truth or the facts are. They aren't considering the veracity of the claim or the evidence that's on offer. Their primary concern is how this turns out for them, isn't it? How will this affect me and my position and my standing and my reputation? Their words reveal their heart. That God's glory and God's truth is not at the center of their desire. It is their own kingdom they seek to protect. Second error they make is revealed in verse 32, isn't it? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd. So not only are they not operating from a place of conviction, regardless of how it turns out for them, but they're also operating according to what? The fear of man. They were afraid of what the crowd will do to them. So we have pragmatism, expediency, worried about keeping their own kingdom intact, all of that now wrapped up as well in the fear of man. That's quite a cocktail. How many of us have run away from truth because of a fear of man? How many pulpits have been compromised because of a fear of man? 
For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Paul asked the Galatians. Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. The Sanhedrin operated from fear because their life was not about God's glory or even conviction of principle. It was on self-preservation. It was building their own kingdom, having the most honor. They were political animals. But here today, they've met their match. You don't match wits with the Son of God. You'll lose. They are well and truly stuck here, sitting on the horns of a dilemma, between a rock and a hard place. Pick your analogy. They're sunk. If we acknowledge that John's ministry was ordained and blessed of God, we must accept his message and his words. And that message? Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. Come to save his people from their sins. Repent. Repent. Fall down on your face to the one who is worthy. You must decrease and he must increase. Is that something these chief priests desired? Did they desire that Jesus increase and that they decrease? Certainly not. John's message declares that the one standing before them today, we are not even worthy to untie his sandal. If we accept this man John was from God, we should be on our faces before the master of this very house, the very temple that we're in. Forget about worshiping him. They want to kill him. They loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So they cannot say that John was from God because that means they're acknowledging Jesus is Messiah. That's too painful of a horn. The other horn sits on verse 32. But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd. For everyone was regarding John to have been a real prophet. Now I wondered when I read this, if this is one of the only places in Mark where we see the general word for crowd actually get something right. Now, usually the crowd is not portrayed in a positive light in Mark. But John the Baptist was indeed the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the greatest man to ever live, according to Jesus. Of course, after reports of John's horrific martyrdom circulated amongst the people, their admiration and their reverence for John only grew. They attributed to John the words of God. They considered him a prophet. If the chief priests and the scribes and the elders reject John as a heretic, this would be blasphemy in the ears of the crowd. And remember, they're listening and watching this exchange. A good old-fashioned stoning outside the temple walls was certainly not off the table if they disparaged John the Baptist. Of course, being killed by the much-despised King Herod likely only increased the, the populist fervor for John. And we don't need a riot around the temple during Passover. Recall that part of the Sanhedrin's job was as a mediator, right? And a peacekeeper between the Jews and the Romans. They feared the outcome. They feared the outcome more than they feared God. They feared the loss of prestige and privilege more than truth. Messiah stands before them, claiming all authority, claiming he has the might and the right to not only do what he did the day before, but to now question the very pinnacle of religious power in Israel. What do you say to that? What can you say to that? 
Our scene concludes with the highest of tragedy. The highest of tragedy. Observe the response, beloved. Final verse, verse 33. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. Now stop there. That's a lie. That's a lie. It's their pride and their fear of man now wrapped in a lie. Of this response, Aiken writes, quote, they would rather keep their position and live a lie than submit to Christ and walk in the truth. Their problem was not dullness of mind, but stubbornness of will, close quote. Jesus' response as we close out our chapter, makes it, it makes the believer want to cheer somewhat in, in Jesus' intellectual triumph over these pit vipers that are clothed in religious garb. But there's no cause for rejoicing here. What we witness is a tragedy. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, your condemnation is complete. You're done. There are no more terrifying words in Scripture than the places where God gives men over. When he gives them over to the delusions of their heart. God spoke in Genesis 6 that he will not strive with man forever. In this time, God had come to the end of the wickedness that he would allow in mankind. He does not allow it to go on in perpetuity. That's why he shortened the lives of men to 120 years. Their hearts were fixed upon that which was evil in the sight of God. And here we witness such a tragedy. Jesus giving these men over to the continual hardness of their heart. There is no more to be said than has already been said. You are without excuse. I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things because you wouldn't listen even if I did. I will not throw the precious pearl of the gospel before swine. You'll only blaspheme it. You will only trample it underfoot. Jesus says, I'm done with you. And now you cannot see because you will not see. My spirit will not strive with you forever. And we observe this in Mark 3 as well with what is often known as the unpardonable sin, the continual hardness of heart despite having the light shining right in your face to not only reject it, but to attribute the work and the words of Christ to Satan. That's delusion. Well, it's this delusion that will crucify the only Son of God. This morning, we are reminded that God will not strive with us forever. Church is not free. The words you hear require a response. The very claims and person of Jesus Christ require a response. Every rejection causes the heart to callous a little more till the hardness is complete. R.C. Sproul writes of this quote, God's grace is not infinite. God is infinite, and God is gracious. We experience the grace of an infinite God, but grace is not infinite. God sets limits to his patience and forbearance. He warns us that someday the axe will fall and his judgment will be poured out. Close quote. Say, brother, I don't reject Jesus. 
I'm here every Sunday. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Is your life marked, not by perfection, but by a continual desire to grow in holiness? As we evaluate our growth, are we more like Christ today than we were a year ago? Jesus' final words in the temple today are a high warning. They're a high warning to all that would hope on tomorrow to come to Christ. That would set the call of the Holy Spirit to the side just one more time. Hear the caution and heeding of Scripture today. Today is the acceptable day of salvation. God forbid we should hear, I have nothing more to say to you. I have told you, and yet you would not listen. Let that not be said of us this morning. Do not presume upon his grace. You are guaranteed no more words than what you hear right now. That's it. If you've never come to Christ in repentance and faith, beloved, do it today. And he will turn his kind face toward you. And he will call you his own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have seen both the glory in this text and the tragedy and the warning in this text. Oh, Heavenly Father, that we might have the wisdom to receive it and to consider it and to ponder it anew and afresh today. Lord, we desire to be a people pleasing to you. We desire to be ones that are faithful when the doors are closed and no one watches. If we love you, we will obey your commands. We ask that you would help us. Lord, if there be anyone here this morning that has not come in repentance and faith, Lord, that today would be that day, that they would set aside the old man walking in newness of life. We do not presume upon your grace and your mercy, Heavenly Father. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.